And thanks to our musicians for leading us in those songs, which is, is quite relevant for this evening's topic. If you have a Bible with you, you might like to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're starting the second half of the first book of Samuel this evening, and we'll be going through to the end uh, over the next few weeks. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we'll start at verse 1. My Bible, this is called Samuel Anoints David. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, 
sent me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit of God came on, the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. And I want to read just one verse from the next chapter, chapter 17, it's verse 28. And this is Eliab speaking to David. Eliab was the oldest son of Jesse. When Eliab, verse 28, when Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. In the first book of, in the first part of the book of 1 Samuel, which we covered earlier in the year, we saw that Israel had demanded to be led by a king so that they wouldn't look strange and weird in the eyes of the nations round about them, in the eyes of their neighbors. It seemed to matter to Israel how they were perceived by their neighbors. And so they asked for a king. The Lord used Samuel, the prophet, to appoint King Saul for them. Now Saul was impressive from the outside. But the strain of the job opened up cracks in Saul's personality and his faith. Instead of turning to the Lord for help, he turned against the Lord. His leadership began to disintegrate, and it became apparent that Saul was not the answer Israel had been hoping for. So the Lord rejected Saul and asked Samuel to officially identify another person who was going to be the next king. Now, he had to do this privately for obvious reasons. And that person was David. Now, if you know the Bible, you'll know that King David or David is one of the most significant characters in the whole of the Old Testament. He single-handedly established the kingdom of Israel. He united the nation. He also organized the worship of God. He was the gold standard against which all subsequent kings were measured. He was far from perfect, but in the essentials of leading God's people, David's heart was in the right place. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus is called the son of David. What an honor that was for David. David was in some ways a prototype of the true king who was the Lord Jesus. Even in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus associates himself with David for all eternity. So we need to know about David, why the Lord chose him, and how the Lord prepared him for the huge responsibility of establishing and leading the kingdom of Israel. Now, chapter 16, which we have just read, introduces David to us. He is introduced to us in three capacities. First, as a shepherd, 
then as a musician, and finally as a soldier in the service of Saul. Now we could look at each of those three roles in turn, but there's something interesting in the way that David is introduced to us in this chapter. We're introduced to David through the eyes of others. The emphasis is on the perception which others had of David before he became famous. For example, our passage tells us about how David was perceived by his father and by his oldest brother Eliab, by Samuel and by God, by one of Saul's servants, and even by Saul himself at this stage. And this question of how David was perceived by others and to what extent that influenced David is important in a potential leader. How a person reacts to how others perceive them before they have any leadership role or before they come to public attention, it can be very revealing in evaluating someone's suitability for leadership. So let me give you some questions this evening. Questions which I'd like you to ask yourself rather than me asking you. Not that there's much difference when I put them to you. So let me ask you, or ask yourself, do you know how you are perceived by other people? I mean, know rather than imagine what they're thinking about you. Do you actually know what they think about you? Are they right? Are their perceptions of you correct? And do you care? Do you care what others think about you? Does it matter to you how others see you? And does, lastly, does the way that others perceive you influence how you behave? Now, those are quite important questions in our culture today because this whole question sometimes guides and influences the direction that our lives take. So let's go through our reading and look at how David is introduced to us through the eyes of others. First, we'll see how David was perceived by his father, Jesse. Now, Jesse was a respected man in Bethlehem. He and his wife had a whole series of sons and they seemed to be big and strong and healthy. Eventually, David, oh, sorry, Jesse had the perfect family, seven sons. In Israel, seven represented completeness and perfection. And so after having seven sons, Jesse felt complete and fulfilled. And then Jesse's wife became pregnant. This was unexpected. In Ulster, such a baby might have been called a wee accident. <laughs> In some families, a late child can bring great delight to their parents. And sometimes they're specially gifted. But for Jesse, this was a disaster. It ruined his perfect brood of seven sons. Jesse had no role for his eighth son. He barely even acknowledged David as his son. When Samuel held a feast for Jesse and all his sons, David wasn't even invited. When Samuel asked if Jesse had uh, any more sons, Jesse was almost embarrassed to acknowledge David. 
Jesse had donated his first three sons to the Israeli Defense Force in Saul's army. And Jesse was proud of his sons and their role. But when it came to David, Jesse gave him the lowest and the most menial of job that he could think of, to look after sheep on the hills outside Bethlehem. You can imagine nowadays the pressure that someone like Jesse's wife would have been under when she got pregnant a bit later in life. Just have an abortion, she would be told. Another baby now would be so disruptive. You'll be stuck at home again for years. No nice holidays. It'll be so inconvenient and expensive. There's a much easier solution. Imagine how different the Bible would have been if David had been aborted or left outside on the hillside to die as the Greeks commonly did. Israel would have lost its greatest king. We would have not have had the wonderful book of Psalms. Jesus would not have been called the son of David. It would have been unthinkable. And yet in 2020, it happened to over 200,000 babies in England and Wales alone. I often wonder how many leaders, how many musicians, doctors and nurses and teachers have been lost to society because of that. David was rejected by his father. He, may, he must have tried, I'm sure, time and time again to gain the respect and the affection of his father, only to be rebuffed and ignored. And it would have been easy for that situation to have destroyed David. He could have spent his teenage years and even the rest of his life seething with resentment. But amazingly, he didn't. We look later at what protected David from being destroyed by his father's bad attitude. And let's move on now to how David was perceived by his older, oldest brother, Eliab. When Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king, the first one who was introduced to him was the oldest son, Eliab. And Samuel was really impressed. We read, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Samuel thought Eliab had all the qualities which would make a much better king than Saul. Eliab was strong, tall, and handsome. But Samuel hadn't learned the lesson of Saul. He was still judging people on the outside. And just as he reached for his horn of oil to anoint Eliab, the Lord stopped Samuel in his tracks. Don't do it, he said. You don't know what his heart is like on the inside. And you can't judge someone's heart until they had been tested and put under stress. So what was Eliab's heart like? Well, that was why I skipped forward to read that one verse which describes an encounter between Eliab, who was in Saul's army at the time, and David, who had come from a sheep to bring some supplies. And this reveals how Eliab perceived David. This is what he said. 
I, he said this to David. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. We know there wasn't a hint of conceit in David. And he had a good heart. So Eliab's warped perception of David tells us nothing about David, but it tells us everything about Eliab. It was Eliab's heart and outlook which was twisted. He looked at the rest of life through the eyes of his twisted heart, and that distorted his view of everyone, especially everyone who was good. When Eliab accused someone as good as David of being conceited, he was revealing that he himself was conceited. He was projecting his own uh, warped view of people, his own ambitions, his own sinful and selfish motives. He was projecting those onto other people. So when he was saying that David was conceited, that his heart was full of evil, he was basically describing himself. Sometimes I hear people criticize all their managers or even the government all the time and they say that their managers are corrupt and only interested in themselves and in feathering their own nest. I've even heard one or two people who constantly accuse church elders of only doing the job because they're ambitious. When I hear that or see that pattern in someone's thinking, to me, it only reveals what's in their heart. It tells me nothing about their managers except to pray for them, for endurance. But it reveals that their heart is full of ambition, thwarted personal ambition, and corrupt. So if you ever find yourself being accused unjustly by someone of being proud or arrogant or ambitious, don't be too quick to believe it. By all means, examine your heart before the Lord and see if there's even a hint of truth in it. But it could be that your accuser is just revealing their own heart and is imagining your motives to be the same as the poisonous thoughts and ambitions which they harbor in their own heart. And there's no point in arguing with someone like that, presenting facts to them, because their problem isn't the facts, the problem is their own heart. And you don't change that just by talking with them. So we've looked at how David's father and oldest brother perceived him. Now, let me skip forwards a bit to see how David was perceived by one of, one of Saul's servants or attendants. Okay, this was a man who had no family connection as far as we know with David. Now, while David was suffering at the hands of his own family and looking after sheep, Saul was still king. And Saul was having his own problems. They were largely self-inflicted problems. In verse 13, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And immediately in verse 14, we read, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Saul had repeatedly rejected the prompting and guidance of God's Holy Spirit. And as a result, Saul ended up being prompted and guided by a different spirit, an evil spirit. 
When you refuse to obey the Spirit of God, you don't become free. You end up being influenced by other more destructive spirits. This evil spirit didn't fundamentally change what Saul was inside. It simply exacerbated the evil feelings which were already in Saul's heart. As Saul became more and more paranoid, and as he dwelled on his own jealousies and grudges, the evil spirit troubled Saul's mental state until his paranoia and agitation overflowed in anger and violence. A couple of chapters later, uh, we'll see that uh, Saul's condition got worse. In fact, Saul's anger burst out twice in such violence that he hurled a spear at David, trying to kill him. And in the middle of that, David was there trying to calm Saul down. And as Saul's attendants noticed that the problem, uh, Saul's problem was begun, beginning to become serious, their solution was to try to use music to calm Saul down when he was getting agitated. Music, it's well known that music, especially classical music, can have a very positive effect on mental health. One of Saul's attendants clearly knew David and observed David quite closely. His perception of David was well informed and actually quite detailed. Uh, he describes five things about David in verse 18. I don't know if you noticed that. He says this about David. Firstly, he knows how to play the lyre. A lyre is like a small harp. He said, he's a brave man and a warrior. He said, he speaks well. He says, he's a fine looking man. And he's, lastly, he says, the Lord is with him. That's a very detailed description of David. And that was the perception of this servant of Saul. Now, let me just go through and pick out some of those things. Firstly, about David being a musician. David was a highly talented musician. He was known to be expert at playing the lyre. Uh, and the lyre is one of those instruments that makes a rather gentle sound. David didn't just play the lyre, he composed music. And in fact, he even made musical instruments. In many ways, David was the father of that rich Jewish musical tradition, which persists even to this day. David founded the musical tradition of Israel. Later in David's life, he organized the Levites into choirs which led the temple worship. He trained them, he wrote the music for them, he made the instruments that they used. But even more important than the music was the words of the songs which David wrote and sang. And we still have many of these in the Psalms. And during those painful years which David spent as a shepherd, having been rejected by his family, David did not waste his time moping, getting himself into a depression, or wallowing in his bad treatment. Saul's attendant noted two, things, uh, two other things about David. First of all, he said, he speaks well. David has a way with words, not only in speaking, but in writing, in writing poetry. 
And the other thing he said is, the Lord is with him. David sang about the Lord. Not just love songs about unrequited love or other such things that preoccupy present-day songwriters. David's music was only to accompany the words that he wrote in the Psalms. You may have noticed that at the beginning of some of the Psalms, up at the top, there, uh, David specifies the instruments which were to accompany the Psalm. And sometimes he specifies loud instruments like trumpets. Other times he says it should be accompanied by cymbals which give rhythm, uh, where the rhythm had to be emphasized. And perhaps in those psalms, David wanted people to be stirred up. Percussion instruments had the ability to do that. But when David was asked to calm Saul down, the last instruments he would have used would have been cymbals or trumpets or drums. Instruments like that would have had Saul itching for his spear. Many of the years ago, when I was, I suppose, still a teenager, I had the misfortune to find myself in a rock concert by accident. The beat was so loud that I found myself having some very unchristian wishes that there might be a Saul in the house with a spear handy. And the thought crossed my mind that if such a person had pinned the drummer to the back wall, it would have been a distinct improvement in the proceedings. <clears throat> now, in our church, we are blessed to have rather different musicians like that, who are not only skillful, but who are sensitive to adapt the accompaniment and volume to suit the meaning of the words. And they led us even this evening in some words based on David's writing. Not every church has that blessing. So when Saul was troubled, David intelligently selected the instrument and selected what he was going to, to play and played a gentle, contemplative instrument like the lyre. And I would be fairly sure that David did not simply play the lyre. I'm sure he would have sung to Saul some of the psalms that he had composed and accompanied it on the lyre. I was wondering, which of David's psalms would he have sung to Saul when Saul was fretting, when he was getting really agitated and angry? It is speculation, but I was thinking about Psalm 37. Here are some lines, uh, and just imagine David singing this to Saul when Saul was getting really angry and agitated. David writes in that psalm, do not fret because of those who are evil. Trust in the Lord and do good. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. Now, we can't be sure if that was one of the ones that David sang to Saul. But we do know and it's told that Saul responded to David's input as a musician to his life. And the psalms with a sensitive accompaniment can have a very helpful effect when someone's mental health is disturbed. At least it can be helpful in the short term. 
Saul's attendant had also seen David's courage and skill when he was protecting his sheep from dangerous wild animals. He knew he was courageous and um, also skillful as a soldier, as a warrior. He had maybe seen David use his sling to drive off lions and bears. And he saw that David would make an excellent soldier. This, this attendant, we don't know who he was, but he had a perception of David that was totally different from David's father and his own family. His perception was unbiased. It was objective. He recognized David's talents without any hint of jealousy. He knew what was important in a person when it came to serving the king. And it was refreshing to see someone who saw David for what he was. And finally, let's just uh, end by looking at how God perceived David. We've seen that David's own family had a perception which was completely wrong, and I'm sure that hurt David deeply. But it didn't damage or distort him. David continued to ply his own pharaoh, as it were. He was still loyal to his family. On the other hand, others were much closer to the truth, as we've just been thinking. But David didn't let things go to his head when he, even when he pleased Saul. Saul let it be known that David pleased him. But that didn't go to David's head. He didn't become conceited. There was no conceit in David's heart. Because in David's life, the only person whose opinion really mattered was God. The Lord said that he looks into the heart. And the Lord looked into David's heart, and he liked what he saw. Later, the Lord describes David as a man after God's own heart. David was enthusiastic. He was without personal vanity. He was transparent. He was always loyal. That was a feature of his life, and he was able to inspire that in others. He was loyal even to his enemies, to King Saul, when Saul was hounding him and trying to kill him. And when Samuel was at last introduced to David, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one. And so Samuel anointed David. David's future success as king was going to depend on David's heart rather than just his military skill and strength. That's why the Lord looks into people's heart. And the Lord did not forget how David had been despised for being a shepherd on the hills of Bethlehem. You remember when the Lord Jesus was born, the son of David was born in Bethlehem. God sent the entire hosts of heaven's angels to honor the shepherds on the same hills where David had been a shepherd. God was retrospectively honoring David and rebuking those who had despised him in his youth. So let's end by asking ourselves again some of those questions we started with. How much are we affected by other people's perception of us? Are we devastated if someone makes a negative comment on us, about us on Facebook? Do we become very defensive if someone circulates uh, a criticism about us? Do we allow other perceptions, other people's perceptions to mold us? 
Do we simply live our lives reacting to what others think of us? Or do we actively care only about God's good opinion of us? Because that's what will protect us from the hurt and damage which can be caused by other people's wrong perceptions, even within our families. If you're ever going to be in a position of leadership, you need to learn to be patient when someone has false perceptions about you. Elders in churches know all about this. You don't have to go around trying to protect your reputation at all costs. You have to be patient and trust the Lord to look after your reputation. There will always be people who misinterpret your motives, sometimes because their own hearts and ambitions are warped. They will protect, project their own desires and faults onto their leaders. And let's remember that most people look only on the outside. And let's be careful that we don't make that same mistake, that we, like the Lord, try to look into a person's heart. But the Lord himself is really the only one who can do that. He sees what is most important. And as he looks into our hearts tonight, what does he see? Of course, our inner motives are often a mixture of good motives and selfish motives. But with the Lord's help, we can learn to separate out the good motives from the impure ones. We can learn to spot those motives which merely feed our own ego and our own vanity and our own interests. And we can refuse to feed those or be influenced by them. But there will also be good motives. Maybe you're not so conscious of that, and that's sometimes a good thing. The motives which are to be right and pure, and they're not based on self-interest. In Philippines, where Paul is talking to leaders, he says, he says about most people, he says, most people, they just do everything out of self-interest. But he says, in your attitude, do not do things out of self-interest. And motives which are to help other people, those are what the Lord looks for in our heart. Those are what we should allow to drive our actions and direct our choices. If we want only the Lord's approval, then we will not be deflected or manipulated or depressed by what others think of us. Let's just close in a moment's prayer and then I'll hand back to Alan. Our Father, we thank you for how your word gives us insight into the heart of someone who was to be a prototype of the Lord Jesus. And as we think of David and all that he represented, we do thank you for his example. But more than that, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who fulfilled to a much greater degree and an utterly perfect way the true heart of God. We pray, Father, that you would work in us, give us a pure and a clean heart and a heart that is devoted to the Lord. And through that, to deliver us from being manipulated and driven merely by what others think of us. In Jesus' name, amen.